Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of endless Tory gates. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is the Fushimi Inari Shrine or Fushimi Inari Taisha, which is a very, very famous shrine in Kyoto and the head shrine of the Kami Inari. Paul, can you tell me what a Kami is? Akami is a Japanese deity. Yeah, referred to commonly as gods, to gods, deities, kami. We're going to be using all these words kind of interchangeably. They're all referring to the same thing. In Shinto, the native Japanese religion, polytheistic, right? A lot of kami, different deities around. So we're going to be talking about that a bit. Speaking of which, so this is our very first episode that we're doing about a specific shrine in Japan. But we did do an episode back in episode nine about temples and shrines in general. So if you're not familiar with temples and shrines and the difference between them and what that's all about, might be a good idea to pop back there, listen to episode nine, and then come back. That'll probably help this episode make a lot more sense. So Fushimi Inari Taisha, Mm -hmm. where does that name come from? Well, let's break it down into its separate parts, shall we? Fushimi. Fushimi is a ward of Kyoto where this shrine is located. Very simple. All right, so that's the where. Yep. Inari. Inari. What, what's Inari? Inari is a kami that the shrine is dedicated to. Yes, a very important kami in Japan. So I guess you get Taisha. A Taisha is a shrine, basically. And a shrine is a religious place in that religion. I mentioned Shinto. And at shrines, one or more kami are enshrined there. So the idea is the spirit of the kami, the spirit of the deity, the god, is placed in an object at the shrine called a shintai. So this object contains the spirit of the kami and anybody can just come and pray to that kami, like directly in front of them in this this object, you know? So there you go. Fushimi Inari Taisha, Fushimi Inari Shrine. It is the shrine to the kami Inari located in Fushimi, ward of Kyoto. It all makes sense. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, Jason, Fushimi Inari is the head shrine to Inari in all of Japan. Correct. The original Inari shrine. And this makes it a very important place because Inari shrines are the most prolific shrines in all of Japan. No one's got an exact count, but it's believed there's up to 32,000 sub-shrines dedicated to Inari throughout Japan. Yeah, no other kami has that many shrines dedicated to them. Yeah. Paul, at the very beginning, you mentioned Tori Gates. Mm -hmm. What is a Tori Gate? It's the gateway that you'll see to enter a shrine. Yeah, because it's supposed to separate the normal world and the sacred grounds of the shrine, right? You'll, you'll see them like at the entrance to shrines all over Japan. That's kind of a symbol of like, this is the entrance to the shrine. Yeah. So we're talking about two poles in the ground going straight up, connected by a curved piece. Yeah. The symbol, our logo. Our logo for the podcast. Oh, exactly. That is a Tory gate. Is a gate. Tory gate. <laughs> I don't know why we didn't think of that. That's perfect. Yeah. A lot of times these Tory gates are, I mean, they're usually made of wood. Uh, a lot of times you'll see like natural wood color. A lot of times they are colored red. They're painted red. And 
What is this specific shrine known for with these tour gates, Paul? It's known for having a lot of them. Yeah. As in thousands of them. Yeah. There is a big one at the entrance, the main entrance to the shrine, but also the shrine just has tons and tons inside the shrine complex. Yeah. Like rows of them that you walk through. Yeah. And it's it's really cool experience. Yeah. You've probably seen pictures of these. I mean, if you've seen any Japanese shrine pictures, you've probably seen pictures of this place because people love taking pictures of just these long rows of gates. They're really visually striking. Yeah, it's very possibly the most famous shrine in Japan. Yeah, yeah. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the Kami Inari, Kami that is enshrined at this shrine. We're going to talk a bit about some fun facts about the shrine, talk about its history, and learn why it is such a famous shrine in Japan and around the world. Okay, so first, let's talk about who or what Inari is. Inari, as we said, is the kami that the shrine enshrines. And Inari can be known as Inari-o-kami or O-Inari. Paul, what is, what is that O part? Uh, a sign of respect. Yeah, it's an honorific. And you got to show respect to Inari because Inari is one of the most important Japanese kami not only popular in Shinto tradition, but even in Buddhist traditions. Like, Inari bridged the gap between these two religions that certain times in Japanese history were kind of at odds with each other. Yes. They were also very closely melded at times as well. Yeah. Complicated history there. Yeah. Intertwining, love-hate relationship, maybe. We talked about that in episode nine, so hopefully you went back and listened to that. (laughs) So Inari was known for a lot of things throughout centuries, but primarily, you know, I was known as the Kami of Rice and Agriculture. And I actually saw that most scholars think that the name Inari came from Ine Nari, which means growing rice. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, Inari was also worshipped as a patron of business and by merchants and manufacturers. Yeah. I've even got a quote from the current head priest of Fushimi Inari. Oh, cool. Uh, Akira Nakamura. He says, Inari Okami has been worshipped as the deity who provides the people with food, clothing, and housing that support life and who brings abundance and joy. Nice. Sounds like a pretty important kami. That's why everybody's always worshipping Inari. Inari is great. So, Paul, what do you know about what Inari looks like? Is Inari male? Or female, or what? You know, I never really thought about it. Yeah, me either, before I started researching this. But you may have noticed I've been kind of avoiding saying he or she when referring to Inari, because it's unclear. Inari has been depicted in different places as male or female, or androgynous, entirely genderless, or even, apparently, Inari is depicted as a collective of three to five individual kami. Interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. So you could say that Inari's pronoun might be they, them, you know? Yeah. Who knows? And Paul, foxes are closely related with Inari, right? Is Inari a fox? No, Inari is not a fox. Okay. What's the deal with the foxes? Fox, or kitsune, as they're known in Japan, are said to be the messengers of Inari. Yeah, that's definitely something I've heard a lot. Yeah, a lot of people think that Inari is a fox just because of that close relationship between Inari and foxes, but 
Apparently, both Shinto and Buddhist priests discourage that idea of Inari being a fox. Yeah. But throughout history, Inari has been depicted in all sorts of ways, not even only as like male or female humanoid type figure, but I also saw that Inari has been depicted as a snake or a dragon. One tale even has Inari taking the form of a giant spider. So, wow. Yeah. Really (laughs) uh, hard to pin down. The image of Inari. Nobody really knows what Inari might look like. It's up to your imagination. Yeah. Paul, what can you tell us about the history of Inari worship in Japan? History time. All right. Yeah. I found the oral tradition of the founding of Fushimi Inari Taisha. What's that? There was a man named... Irogu no Hatanokimi, and he is said to have shot a rice cake that he was using as a target with a bow and arrow. And the rice cake turned into a swan and flew away. I believe and it. And eventually, the swan landed on the peak of a mountain where an unnamed auspicious omen occurred. That's pretty vague. <laughs> and then a bunch of rice grew. Okay, that's cool. And uh, that's where they founded the temple. Now I'm really curious what that omen was. Maybe I'm not reading this right. And like the the rice growing was the omen. Yeah, that seems like a pretty uh, notable event on its own, you know. It depends how fast it happened. It doesn't say like rice grew overnight. Yeah. Or like the next harvest of rice was really good on the mountain. True. But even rice growing on the very top of a mountain, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose that's just impressive. Yeah. It's not the tallest mountain around. True. Yeah, that's a cool story. That's fun. Yeah. So if we get into real history that we can trace at least, not to discourage oral tradition, we know that the earliest structures for the shrine were built in the year 711. Yeah. No uh, relation to the convenience store chain as far as I could tell. <laughs> I saw that some scholars think that Inari was worshipped for centuries, potentially, before 7-Eleven, but it's hard to say what was going on that long ago. At least as long as they were growing rice, you would think they'd be worshipping Inari, but you never know. Yeah, so around 100 years later, in 823, Inari became the resident protector kami of another shrine in Kyoto called Toji. And then four years after that, in 827, the court granted Inari the lower fifth rank, apparently. I was not aware that Kami had ranks in Japan. I came across that researching our Temples and Shrines episode. It's kind oh, of yeah? interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, is there still a ranking or was this like a thing that they did a thousand years ago? I believe there's still a ranking. Oh, man. We got to look that up. I'd be curious. Yeah. I think a lot of pantheistic religions have similar type stuff to that, like the upper pantheon and the low, you know, the more important yeah. gods and the less important gods, and they're all ranked in some sort of way. Sure, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, so Inari, you know, as I said, granted the lower fifth rank, but by 942, Emperor Suzaku granted Inari the very top rank as thanks for helping overcome rebellions. Wow, that's a quick rise to the most important. Around 100 years to go from fifth to first. Yeah. yeah, And Fushimi Inari Taisha, the specific shrine, was one of the 22 shrines chosen by the court to receive imperial patronage. So I guess the emperor is like, you know, I'm a busy guy. 
I don't have time to visit all the shrines around, but here are the important ones. And Fushimi Inari was one of those. Yeah, 22 is a decent number for one person to visit, especially before uh, modern transportation. Yeah, yeah. And that would have helped push Inari's popularity a lot because, you know, emperor endorsement of anything, it was a really big deal. You know, everybody's paying attention to what the emperor is into. Yeah, you can just sit there and be like, yeah, the emperor swings by sometimes. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And I read that in 965, Emperor Murakami said that messengers had to carry written accounts of important events to the guardian kami of Japan, including Inari. So I'm just envisioning this, this guy just hiking up this mountain, like, all right, I got this scroll with like what's going on in current events. Got to go tell Inari what's going on in case he wants to get involved or help us out with something, you know? Yeah. Does he just drop off the scroll or does he go up to the shrine open the scroll and start reading. Yeah. You know? I proclaim this is what's going on, Inari. Yeah, I'd be really curious. I bet there must have been some sort of like, you know, really sacred ceremony that he does at the top of the mountain. Yeah. That would be my Or he guess. hands it off to the priest to do whatever with it. Yeah. Well, at this point, I'm not even sure there was anything at the very top of the mountain because the shrine itself is at the base of the mountain, right? So I'm not sure if he's just hiking up to the very top and just... There were old buildings at the top, but I couldn't find exactly when they were built. It's okay. kind of vague. But that, when we talked about the first buildings in 7-Eleven, that was at the base of the mountain, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so I also saw in the late 800s, Japan's second Inari shrine was established in what is modern-day Miyagi Prefecture near Sendai. And that one's still there, actually. The second Inari shrine ever created, you can still visit it. That's cool. Yeah. So, you know, we should clarify, how does this work? If you have a main shrine, like Inari was first enshrined at this Fushimi Inari shrine, what does that mean for them to open up another Inari shrine? Like, how can you have a kami enshrined in two different places? And we mentioned this in the Temples and Shrines episode, I think, but in case people aren't sure. Yeah. You've got the object that the kami resides in, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You can, through ritual, bring another object, and the kami will now reside in both objects. Right. So you take that second object to a new place and start a new shrine. Yeah, and this can happen a bunch of times. Like, the kami can kind of be split, you know, as many times as you want, but the way I read it is that it's not really splitting. Like, it's not like if you have two different objects like that it's not like half of the spirit is in one half of the spirit is in the other you're making me think of communion now where they got the big piece of bread the body of christ oh, yeah, and yeah. they're just tearing little pieces off for everybody <laughs> yeah, yeah but it's all just it's still just christ right sure same thing i i guess with the kami yeah the analogy i liked is that it's like lighting a candle off of another candle you're not taking away from the flame of the original candle but now you have two candles. Yeah, and the kami, I think, kind of reside in their own realm, and like the object is just a way for us to interact with them in in our world. Yeah. So it's just another place you can interact with the kami. Yep. All right, so over time, Minari got more and more popular. In 1072, the Fushimi Shrine became an imperial pilgrimage site. I saw that at that point, At least by that point, there was a festival that they held there that was a really big deal. People came from all over to go to this festival. But in 1468, you know what happened in 1468, Paul? Everything burned down? Yeah, burned to the ground. 
and it took 30 years to rebuild. 1499 is the year that uh, the structure, the main shrine structures were rebuilt. Yeah. And still stand to this day from 1499. Really? Yeah. The main structures. There's been some smaller ones that have been ruined here or there that have yeah. been rebuilt. I'm sure they've done all sorts of like restorations. They're, it seems yeah. like they're always doing restorations on various temples and shrines in Kyoto. Yeah, they've know? moved some buildings around. Yeah. But uh, the main ones are 500 years old now. That's awesome. Yeah. So the main structures were rebuilt in 1499, but the main gate itself wasn't built until 1589. And it was actually built from an offering made from Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who is one of the main figures of Japanese history. Yeah, he was super important. One of the people that helped establish that Tokugawa shogunate that we're always going on and on about. Yeah, I heard something about he was praying for his mom to get healthy, and she did. So oh. he uh, built a really impressive main gate. He's like, thank you, Inari, for saving my mama. Yep. Cool. So I think that brings us up to the Edo period then. I think so. Yep. Edo period started in 1603. And, you know, in this period, Inari worship spread all over Japan. And Inari became known as the patron of all sorts of things. Like originally we said that Inari was the kami of rice and agriculture. In the Edo period, Inari became known as the patron of swordsmiths, the protector of warriors, and a lot of castles that were built during the Warring States period, right before the Edo period, had Inari shrines. So Inari had shrines all over Japan at this point. Everybody knew about Inari. And people started praying to Inari for all sorts of things. In the architecture episode, we talked about how in this period, Edo had a lot of wooden structures. And there were a lot of fires, right? So people would be praying to Inari for protection from fire. I also saw Inari was the patron of actors and prostitutes because shrines were often found near those pleasure quarters that we talked about in the geisha episode. So enough prostitutes walk to a nearby shrine, it becomes a shrine of prostitutes? I guess. I guess, yeah, that makes sense. They're the people worshiping and praying. Yeah. Yeah, you walk by a shrine and you see a bunch of uh, ladies of the night hanging around this shrine. You're like, oh, it must be the kami of prostitutes. Inari really strikes me as just the god of like the everyday people. Yeah. The god of getting by comfortably. Yeah. Yeah. Totally see that. Inari is also known as a deity of luck, prosperity, good health, kind of just like anything good that could happen to you, you know? People would ask Inari to grant them children, that sort of thing. Anything, yeah, just in your daily life that you're having a problem with, go ask Inari for help, you know? I've got a few things next time I'm at the shrine. To ask for? Yeah, yeah. You want to share? I need a raise. I need a girlfriend. I need uh, to cut this because it's embarrassing. (laughs) All right, we can move on. (laughs) Oh, so there was another real big thing that changed in the Edo period. We've talked a little bit about this in past episodes, but before the Edo period, there wasn't a single currency that was being used in Japan. Different regions had different money systems, and the only thing that was really universal was rice, right? We talked about in the samurai episode, samurai were paid in koku, which is the amount of rice that can feed a man for one year, right? So rice was your measure of wealth. But in the Edo period, when the Tokugawa shogunate took over, 
they created a money system so that everybody in the country was using the same money and it had the same value no matter where you went. So while Inari was originally a god of rice, that shift to this money system turned Inari into a kami of prosperity and business and industry and that kind of thing. And this is where those red Tory gates that are all over the shrine originated. So businesses started donating these Tory gates to the shrine to get a wish to come true or to thank Inari for a wish that already did come true. You didn't want to be ungrateful if your business became very successful. Yeah. I better don't. I better buy a gate for the local shrine. Yeah. It's like when you get a gift, you got to send out your thank you card or maybe they'll never send you a gift again, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Also during the Edo period, uh, we said in the Temples and Shrines episode that there were shrine complexes, right? That included a lot of Buddhist. There'd often be a shrine right next to a temple. Yeah. Or there would be temple shrine. Yeah. Like there's a combination. It'd be both. Yeah. (laughs) But during the Meiji restoration at the end of the Edo period in 1868, Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples were divided. Like they weren't allowed to be together in one place anymore. So there used to be all sorts of Buddhist structures at Fushimi Inari that were torn down at this time. Yeah, there was a temple on the grounds at one point. Not anymore. Yep. And since then, those shrines just kept multiplying. You know, they just exploded. And now more than a third of the Shinto shrines in Japan are dedicated to Inari. And that's, that's wild. Yeah. And we, we mentioned this earlier, right? There are almost 100,000 Shinto shrines estimated in Japan. So... As many as 32,000 of those are dedicated to Inari. And I do want to point out that this refers specifically to full-sized shrines with like a full-time staff of Shinto priests. I mean, there are small shrines all over the place. You'll see them walking around Japan. Like it'll just be a little one like nestled in next to a, a store somewhere or something. Yeah, I mean, and people have shrines at their homes. Exactly, too. right. So those wouldn't be included in this number, but still pretty impressive yeah that's a lot of inari shrines fushimi inari is famous for all the tori gates very much so we mentioned earlier that they are purchased by businesses and businessmen Mm -hmm. so these gates are big like big enough that multiple people can walk under them at the same time yeah, yeah. I mean, they're spanning the width of the path going up the mountain. The many paths going up the mountain. Two people can comfortably walk side by side on at yeah, the same yeah, time. Yeah, definitely. So what does it cost to donate one of these big gates? Well, what I saw is that, so there are different sizes, right? There's a small one that you can get for around 400,000 yen, which would be about 4,000 US dollars. Or if you want to get one of the big ones... Those can be over a million yen or over $10,000. So kind of a wide range depending on how thankful you want to be, how much you want to ask for Inari's favor. Yeah, that's a significant donation. But for a business, not totally out of line with what a lot of them do. Sure. And you can see because there's so many of them. Yeah, and each one is actually going to have the name of the business that donated it too. They have writing all over them. And that's, that's what you're seeing is the... The name of the business and the date it was donated. Okay. And did you say how many there were? 
There's about a thousand of the big ones on the initial, like the first section you walk through. The main path that's going up. Yeah. Top, right. But if you include all the smaller ones, and we'll get into that later, there's about 10,000. Oh, wow. On, on the mountain. These Tori gates in Japanese are referred to a lot as a Senbon Tori, which means thousands of gates. So, yeah. There you go. So a thousand times 400,000 to a million yen equals a pretty nice donation for the temple. I would say so, yeah. And the gates last about 30 years. Hmm. So after the 30 years, your gate comes down. I don't know if you have to re-up the full amount, but you have to like pay extra to keep your gate going every 30 years. Yeah. I actually remember the first time I went, I saw them... They must have been either tearing down an old one or putting up a new one. I don't really remember, but I saw some like guys out there working on one of the gates. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that thick part of gates at the bottom. Every once in a while, they'll be like, oh, you could fit one here. And like, <laughs> maybe that's one that just came down. Yeah, yeah. Also, you'll notice that all of the gates are painted in this vermilion red color. And I looked into that a little bit, mm. you know, like, why the red? And there's, all these stories out there about why the red. But and it's the, all like about symbolism, right? Yeah. Meaning symbolizing different things. There was one real world reason that I could find. What's that? The red pigment that they paint them with is made from a mixture of mercury and red earth. And that mixture has been used for a long, long time to preserve wood. Really? Mercury? Yeah. Weird. I mean... The source wasn't super specific, so I don't know if you, today they're using mercury because we know it's poisonous. Actually, you know, I think I have heard of mercury being used in paint. There's a podcast I listened to where this guy repaired clocks and he like used the original methods that they were made with. And I think he was using a paint based in mercury. Okay. Yeah, so maybe the mercury has something to do with preserving the wood, helping keeping them up for those full 30 years. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool. It was cool. So now that we gave you a little bit of info about the Tory Gates, I think it's time to talk about what your experience is going to be like. Yeah, let's cover the Go whole... to Fushimi Inari. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, where, where is the shrine located in Kyoto? It's in southern Kyoto. Yeah, it's kind of southeast of Kyoto Station a bit. And as we mentioned, this shrine is located at the base of a mountain. And that mountain actually is also called Inari. Inari is the kami and the mountain. Inari Yama. Yama yep. meaning mountain. Yep. And Paul, how tall is Inari Yama? 233 meters. Correct. And we know this because we've been to the top and there's a sign. <laughs> yeah, there is a sign that tells you. And that translates to 764 feet, if you were curious. I had no idea what qualifies as a mountain and what doesn't, but I feel like we're borderline here. I know. I mean, climbing, <laughs> climbing up this thing and you say, oh, you know, I, I climbed a mountain. It only took a couple hours. Like, mm, did you though? Did you really? I climbed a really big hill today. Yeah. It's yeah. bigger than a hill though. It feels bigger than a hill. I know. I feel like in Japan, a lot of things they call mountains or yama. Yeah. They're just, they're really big hills. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them. Yeah. Okay. So. So let's say you're, you're coming up to the shrine, you're walking down the street, you see that big Tory gate uh, signifying the entrance to the shrine. Before you even get there, I actually read that there, I never noticed this when I was there, but there are apparently sweets shops 
on the road leading up to it, selling something called Tsujiura Senbei. What's that? Well, Senbei are rice crackers, and these specific Tsujiura Senbei are apparently a form of fortune cookie dating back to the 1800s. Ah. And some people think that these cookies are the origin of the American fortune cookie. I do know that American fortune cookies are not Chinese. Yeah. That is not a Chinese thing. Yeah, I feel like what I've heard about fortune cookies, American fortune cookies, is that a lot of people argue about where exactly they came from. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not totally clear. But some people believe that this was the origin of them, apparently. That's cool. Yeah. All right, so you walk up. There's that single big Tory gate at the very front. The first thing you're going to walk through that signifies that you're entering the sacred space of the shrine, right? The biggest one in the whole shrine. Yes, by far. And what is right behind that? Ramon Gate, a very impressive main gate to the shrine. Yeah, and that's the one that you said was donated by Toyotomi Hideyoshi in 1589. Yes, right? yes. And yeah, it is really impressive looking. It's really cool. I, have, I got some good pictures of that one. I'll be sure to post on the website. Yeah, you've got a bunch of pictures. It's hard to get good ones because of all the people, but hopefully I can find some good ones to put up there. If we're talking about pictures, I think I'll mention my fact <laughs> that when I was researching this episode, like every YouTube video I watched, every website I went to said these three words. It's Instagram gold. I'm going to have to test that out. I haven't posted any pictures from the shrine on Instagram yet, but I'll keep track of how they do when I post them. A lot of them recommended that you come like really early in the morning if you're trying to get those pictures mm -hmm. so that you can get the picture without a bunch of people in the way. Yeah, most of mine definitely had people. Because it's a very popular shrine. Very. So yeah, you're going to walk through this main gate and that leads into this complex. And there are a bunch of buildings that are part of this shrine complex. There are places where you can buy, you know, your lucky charms, you can pray, a lot of stuff. You just walk around and look at things. Yeah, keep your eye out for all the kitsune statues. Yeah, there are a lot of those. And look in their mouths. They're almost always carrying something in their mouth. Yeah, the kitsune are foxes, in case you forgot. Yeah, often uh, I hear it's a, in their mouth, it's a key to the rice granary. Yeah. So another yeah. tie-in with the nari. Yep. So we talked earlier about the Shintai, that object that the kami is enshrined in. Apparently, I didn't realize this before I visited there, unfortunately. This would have been really interesting to know. But Inari is enshrined in a mirror. And mirrors are really common objects for kami and all sorts of different shrines to be enshrined in. But the really cool thing about this specific shrine is that you can actually see this mirror. Like, you can see the object that the kami is enshrined in, which you almost never get to see at shrines. Usually it's, you know, on its own in this in its own little building and nobody goes in there. Yeah. While you're at the main hall, it's polite to pay respect to the deity and make a small offering. Yeah, there are always those little donation boxes in front of the praying area at shrines. You don't have to, but it's polite. And we talk about it in the Temples and Shrines episode a little bit about how you go about doing that. So yeah. So if you're interested in that. Yeah, definitely. If, if you want to know about the etiquette, you know, the things that you're kind of supposed to do at a shrine, we cover all that in that How many episode. times do I clap? When do I ring the bell? When do I throw the coin in the... Yeah, we go yeah. over all that. Yep. Okay, so you got this shrine complex at the base of the mountain, but there's stuff all over this mountain. 
right? What so you got to make your way to the far back of the main shrine grounds. And then you'll find the entrance to Tory Gate covered hiking trails. There's a bunch of branches. Like you can. Yeah. So you can take the right branch and then come back down the other branch. Yeah. You know, you, you have a chance to hit both sides. Yeah. And there are places where the, there's a little path that veers off of the main path. And there are all sorts of other little smaller shrines that you can see. So, you know, you could really spend a lot of time exploring all these different nooks and crannies where these little paths veer off in different directions and stuff. So if you take the trails all the way to the top of the mountain, it's about four kilometers or two and a half miles. Yeah. If you don't veer off to a lot of the other little shrines. Right. Just the hike itself is going to be two to three hours up and down to the summit and back in two to three hours. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like we said, there's a lot of things to do on the way. So plan probably for more time than that if you want to go all the way to the summit. Yeah, depending on how adventurous you are, how much time you like to spend just looking at things. Yeah, there's many smaller shrines along the way. There's a, they call it a waterfall, but it's more like a water fountain kind of along the way. And you're going to see a ton of Kitsune statues, statues of foxes. And we mentioned those before, but I had a little more detail about those. What's that? Well, you're pretty much always going to see a pair of them. Yeah. One of them is male and one is female. And a lot of times you'll see them wearing these red bibs. I saw called votive bibs that apparently people place there out of respect for them. That's thoughtful. Yeah. And Paul, you mentioned the key that they're sometimes holding in their mouths. Yeah. There are other things that you might see, or there could also be things beneath one of their front paws, maybe. You could see a jewel, a sheaf of rice. Again, the rice, Inari is the kami of rice. Yep. A scroll, a fox cub, maybe. A young fox. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which are apparently all of these things relate to things that Inari is known for. Like the fox cub, we said that people would pray to Inari for children. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. Connection. And you might also see a lot of offerings in front of these fox statues. People will leave things to offer to the Kitsune in hopes that the Kitsune will go back to Inari and be like, hey, there was this really nice guy that left me some sake or some rice. And like, you know, I think he deserves a little little favor. You should, you know, help him out a bit. Yeah, they've got the ear of Inari. Yeah, exactly. You might also see offerings of Inari Zushi, which we mentioned in the sushi episode. Paul, you remember what Inari Zushi is? Yes, I do. It is sushi rice inside of a thin piece of fried tofu. Mm Mm-hmm. And why is it called Inari Zushi? Because foxes are said to like fried tofu. It's supposed to be their favorite food. Okay. Also, I saw that the pointed corners of the fried tofu are supposed to look like little fox ears. Mm. And the tofu is also seasoned with like soy sauce and mirin and stuff. So it's kind of got an orangish sort of color like a fox. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. So speaking of Inari Zushi, Uh along the way up... There's little rest areas with restaurants, and they feature locally themed dishes, such as Inari Zushi mm. or Kitsune Udon, which is uh, fox udon, I guess. It features fried tofu. Yeah. Because fried tofu is supposed to be the fox food. It's one of my favorite kinds of udon, actually. It sounds good. It is. There's just a, a little piece of fried tofu sitting on top of your udon. Nice. And it's real tasty. Like, that's the highlight of the dish. You know, you scoop in some noodles and then just take a bite of that tofu. Mm, good I stuff. feel like the perfect day 
at Fushimi Nari is like, it's a little bit cool. So you're not sweating too much going up the hill and you stop and get like a warm bowl of noodles. Sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. You'll find vending machines going up the mountain too. Of course. Yeah. The first time I went up there, it was late summer. So it's still pretty hot. I was sweating a lot and I was happy to see vending machines on the way up. Yeah. So we haven't mentioned it, but when we went to Fushimi Nari together, we climbed it in the middle of the night and the vending machines were the only things that we could get anything out of. Yeah. But it was, it was nice being able to grab a sports drink or some water, you know, halfway up a mountain when you're feeling it. Yeah, definitely. Before we get too far into our personal experiences, there was one thing that we didn't mention that you might see on the paths up to the top. And once you get to the top. So we talked about the big Tory gates that businesses donate. But if you're feeling generous, you could also donate a Tory gate, even if you don't want to spend, you know, four to $10,000 on one. Yeah, there's little small ones they sell. Mm-hmm. Foot tall, maybe. I mean, there are different sizes that you can get for different prices, but they're, you know, they're just small, thin Yeah, the gates. small ones are like the size of a small computer monitor. Sure. And the bigger ones are like two or three times that size. Yeah. But you can like hold them in your hands. Yeah. And people will leave them all over the place. Like those little side shrines that you might see up piled up. Yeah. Especially at the very top when you get to, or have we, we didn't talk about what's at the very top yet. Not quite there yet. Okay. Okay. So as you're climbing up the mountain and you're getting close to halfway, you will notice that the Tory gates start becoming less dense. Mm-hmm. And then you get to what's called Yotsusuji intersection. What's that? That is a place that's about exactly halfway up the mountain, and it's got amazing views of the city of Kyoto because you're up a ways at this point, and there's like a little clearing in like the growth where you can just see the city. Yeah, I have vivid memories of that. I think we just stood there looking out at the city for... 10, 15 minutes. Like it's a really amazing view, especially at night. Yeah. Even late at night, there were like a bit, there were like 10 people up there or something. Like there was a bit of people up there looking at the view Mm -hmm. and it's, it looked great with all the lights and everything. I bet it looks even better during the day. I like the night view better personally. You're a, you're a night, you're a night guy. I definitely am. (laughs) So from Yotsutsuji intersection, the path splits off into it's a circle that leads to the top of the mountain so you can take either path they both lead to the top of the mountain and then you come back down the other path and the higher you get the less and less people there are mm-hmm. because a lot of people turn around at the halfway point because they're not in great shape or they already saw all the gates and they saw the view of the city or they're just like i don't know how much longer this is going to take but i don't want to invest much more time in this yeah so feel free to turn around there. You already got a good view of the everything. But if you're like me and you want to go to the top, keep going because it's it's really cool. Yeah. But it also becomes, with the less people and the less gates, it becomes a little more wildernessy. So keep an eye out for animals. There's wild animals. There's cats hanging around. Yeah, we definitely came across some cats. And I don't want to scare anybody off, but large spiders. Oh, enormous spiders. And I mean, they're not like going to be hanging out just in the middle of the path. You're not going to be walking through giant spider webs or anything. But if you do veer off to those smaller paths, or you end up at a less visited sub shrine off to the side. 
it might be good to be careful when you're uh, walking around through, yeah, the more wildernessy places because you could come across a big web just right in front of your face. That happened to me. Yeah, you'd be scraping web off you for a while. Yeah. I mean, probably the biggest spider I ever saw was at Fushimi Inari. Yeah. And I mean, other than in like a zoo. Yeah. And Japan has big spiders in general. Like it's not just this mountain. Right. But uh, right. yeah, I mean, anytime you're out in the wilderness, you're probably likely to see that kind of thing. We heard some animals when we were climbing the mountain and, and briefly saw. Yeah, we got a little glimpse, but like you said, we were hiking up at night and I just had this puny little flashlight. I was trying to, you know, figure out what was going on. I uh, shined my light down there, but it wasn't quite strong enough. Yeah, we were hearing all this running around, all this rustling and these yeah, weird like, noises. Yeah, didn't we hear like snorting yeah. kind of even? Because it was boars. There were a bunch of wild boars. Yeah. Like 20 feet below the path, kind of like off to the side. Yeah. You eventually so cool. shined the light in like one of their eyes and we could see the eyes reflecting back at us. Yeah, yeah. That was cool. That was fun, yeah. You know, I didn't realize it until I think it was my first trip to Japan. I came across a wild boar in Nara, back in Nara Park. I was walking along a path and one just ran oh, really? across the path in front of me. And I was like, holy crap. Wow. I had no idea there were wild boars in Japan. Yeah, they're, they're all over in Japan. They really are, yeah. You, I've heard of people seeing them in a lot of different places. So as you're climbing, you're eventually going to get to the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And there's a shrine at the top of the mountain too. Yep, the inner shrine. So it's a pl another place to pray, another place to give an offering. And a whole bunch of the mini Tory gates stacked around everywhere. Yeah, a ton of those and a ton of little fox statues too. There's kind of just this huge area on top that you can walk around with just tons of like candles that people have lit. There are all these lanterns, like stone lanterns, wooden lanterns. Just a lot of stuff to walk around and look at. It's an interesting experience because you're walking up these super crowded paths and you finally get to the top and you're walking around the inner shrine and all of a sudden it feels like secluded and peaceful almost. Yeah, I've never seen it. I mean, I've only been there a couple of times, but both times there was never a bunch of people at the very top. Yeah. You do kind of get that personal, intimate experience up there, you know? Yeah. And then when we climbed at night, we hardly saw anybody past the halfway. Yeah. I mean, even below that, there weren't a lot of people there right, at all. Right. Yeah. I would definitely recommend hiking up at night Maybe even just before sunrise. It's dark, but there's enough lights that like you're not going to lose your way on the path. Mm -hmm. So when I was at the Fushimi Inari official website, I saw they have a section for special events mm. and they got a bunch of stuff. There's like 20 or 30 special events that go on at Fushimi Inari throughout the year. So if you're going to be in Japan and you're thinking about seeing Fushimi Inari, just check out really quick because you might be able to catch a festival or some special ceremony or something like that, which might be really cool. Nice. Seems yeah. like a really active place. Definitely. I think I've heard really good things about the festival there. So the last thing I've got is I just want to talk about access. You know, how do you get there? When's it open? That sort mm -hmm. of thing. Didn't we, uh, when we went, we took a train from Kyoto Station to a station like real close to the main shrine, right? Yeah. So it's located just outside Inari Station on the Nara line of JR Railways. 
quick straight shot from Kyoto Station, right? It's a five-minute ride from Kyoto Station. Nice. Um, it's also a short walk from the Fushimianari Station on the main line of the Keihan Electric Railway, okay. which I think runs between Osaka and Kyoto. So that hits Fushimianari too. Cool. And we mentioned we climbed it in the middle of the night. So it is open 24 hours a day. Yeah. Oh, I also wanted to mention if you do hike up in the dark, you don't really need a flashlight. Like I brought one just in case, but there are street light sort of things kind of all the way up the path. Yeah. Periodically, you know, light, light. Yeah. There's enough light that you'll be able to make it up there without getting lost or running into anything. Can't hurt to have a flashlight, but you don't need one. Yeah. Um, it's also open every day of the year. So it's never closed. You mm-hmm. never have to think of like, oh, it's Monday past 5 p.m. I can't go to Fushimianari. Yeah, you could you, climb it at 2 a.m. if you really wanted to. Yeah. It might be cool to do the sunrise thing. Mm-hmm. You know, go climb at 5 a.m. and get to the top for sunrise and then head back down while it's still not busy. Yeah, and then you could get some real cool pictures on the way down in the light. The also, morning. the main hall and I think the main gate are illuminated with kind of like spotlights at the night. Mm-hmm. So you can really get a good look of those, even if you're coming at night too. Yeah, I'll be posting a picture that I have of that main gate lit up. And uh, there is no entrance fee either. You can just come and go as you please. Yep, just walk on in. So that's all I got. That's all I got too. Highly recommend going to Fushimianari. Definitely, it's an amazing place. Absolutely. I can't think of another shrine I enjoyed more. You know, probably my favorite shrine in Japan. Yeah, it's definitely up there. All right. Well, if you want to see some pictures, I'll definitely be posting some on the website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com, and on Instagram. Our Instagram is sjppodcast. And you know, I recently realized, I don't really say it often enough, but we have a Facebook page. If you're into Facebook and you're not really into Instagram, uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash sightseeingjapanpodcast. And what are we talking about next time, Paul? The next episode's going to be a little different for us. We're going to be talking about five weird places in Japan. Yeah, stuff that is really interesting and fun to talk about, but maybe not enough to fill up a whole episode. So we got five of them. And I'm really looking forward to this one because, I mean, everybody likes hearing about that unusual stuff in Japan that you can't find anywhere else, you know? It should be fun. We haven't even decided exactly which five yet. But doing the research was fun, trying to find weird things that we haven't talked about yet on all these episodes we've done. Yeah. It's going to be cool. Yeah, I got a couple that I'm super excited about. And the rest of them, I haven't done a lot of research on, but I'm excited to learn about those too. All right, all right. Let's end this episode so we can talk about this. Okay, let's do it. Uh, Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.